This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Can this be changed from inside? It cannot be. I tried for two and a half years inside of Google to change it. There's no way to change these things from the inside. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, I have an episode a lot of you have been asking for for a while. I have on Tristan Harris. Tristan is a founder of the Center for Humane Technology. He is one of the, the primary advocates of the time well spent movement, and he's become the, the, the most important critic, I think, of Silicon Valley, of the way they are building their tools to addict us, to change us, of what a whole industry focused on making us spend more and more and more time in their products has wrought. Tristan is a very interesting background. He had a company that was acquired by Google. Uh, while he was at Google, he created a presentation questioning the way Google was building its products, so the way they were trying to get us to spend more time, the way they were treating their users. That presentation went viral inside the company, went up to the highest levels of the company. And they named Tristan a design ethicist, somebody making sure their design is ethical, which if you just think about the idea that you need that position for a minute, that there you might have some concerns. But... Uh, Tristan found that you could not create the kind of change he wanted to from within the company, that the business model was built too much around engagement, too much around the time people were spending on the products, too much around advertising, and that while you could push people, it was never going to be their focus. So he left the company, has been pushing this now from the outside, has had a tremendous amount of success, a tremendous rocketing to prominence. Uh, and in this conversation, we talk about all this. We talk about the way Silicon Valley builds things to addict you. We talk about the ways that the government can and should respond, what it would mean to regulate this technology as a public health hazard. We talk about whether or not change can come from within these business models. What happened when he brought Thich Nhat Hanh, the, the famous monk, to Google, and Thich Nhat Hanh had actually some product design suggestions. This is a, a very, very important conversation if you're interested in the way technology is changing our brains and the way incentives can restructure industries and, and create what was once idealistic, what was once uh, even utopian, and make it into something much more dangerous and in some ways dark. I learned a lot from talking to him. I think you all will too. 
As always, a couple very quick plugs. If you have feedback for me, if you have guest ideas you want to see on the program, email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. I do not manage to respond to all the emails, but I do read them all. Um, and you should be checking out my other podcasts, Weeds with Matt Iglesias, Sarah Cliff, and others, where we talk the details of policy and politics on Tuesdays and Fridays. Um, for the wonkier among you, I think you'll find a lot to like there. So with that all said, here is Tristan Harris. Tristan Harris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been a weird couple of years for you. Yeah. W- why did this blow up now? Why, why did people respond to the message that tech is not here to serve us, but is instead somewhat becoming our master now? <sighs> There's probably a lot of different things going on here. Uh, I definitely think that the election woke a lot of people up to the power of social media. And I don't mean just the outcome. I think this is really important. I think through 2016, there is a a flavor, a felt sense that social media was just becoming toxic in some way. Like it's just outrage everywhere, sharing these articles, and then getting addicted to to all this stuff, the, ridic- the ridiculousness of a lot of it. And I think that social media, um, you know, kind of deteriorating in 2016 and then becoming addictive in the process, the more that all of this stuff was just happening, is making people, it amplifies the addiction that's already been there. I think people are really feeling like they're losing agency and they, they realize how much time they're spending on their phones. I think both issues kind of exploded. And obviously with the Russian manipulation of social media through the election, people are aware that these things are political actors. Obviously, the rise of fake news, there's a lot of different forces, but it's amazing how even on the addiction side, people are recognizing that um, it's a real it's a real issue. It's a real political act. Something in what you say there about 2016 really, really resonates with me personally, the feeling that that was this moment when a lot of people realized we can't turn away from this and it is making us feel bad. It is not, not eliciting yeah. a good version of us. I had um, Jaron Lanier on this podcast a couple months ago now, and he said something I've been thinking about since then. He said that the key to a lot of social media is that negative emotions are more powerful in engagement than positive emotions. Do you think he's right about that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is Roger McNamee. Roger was Mark Zuckerberg's mentor. Um, who's been out there very publicly like like me. And, and this is actually what we both say together is um, outrage just spreads faster than something that's not outrage or negative emotions. So if you're the Facebook newsfeed, people think that these things are just these neutral tools or products that, you know, you selected those 200 people you follow or you select those friends that you made, you selected what you've clicked on. So therefore you're responsible for what shows up in your newsfeed. But of course that's not how it works because when you open up the blue F icon, you're actually just activating the AI to figure out what's the perfect thing I can show you that'll engage you. And it doesn't have any intelligence except figuring out what gets the most clicks and the outrage stuff gets the most clicks. So it puts that at the top. And so without knowing it, outrage works really well. There was also this magic keyword that if it, if any article had this keyword and you put it at the top of the feed, it would always get a click or a share. And, and it just, it just didn't know why, but it just, this one keyword just worked every time. And that one keyword was Trump, right? I mean, that keyword, if you're just sitting there from the perspective of a naive computer, you just put this thing in front of people and they always click it. Right? And so it's just reinforcing that this is the thing that should go to the top of the feed. And I'm not trying to say this with a value judgment. I'm just saying this is how it works. I can imagine listening to this and saying, I'm sorry, Ezra, that you feel bad. I'm sorry that you feel bad when you turn on social media and everybody's fighting. But you know what? The world is not great right now. And people are getting hurt. And there are real problems out there. And if what's happening is that 
there's something in you that is gravitating towards what's wrong and trying to keep a focus on what's wrong, then rather than trying to fix that, maybe you should be listening to that voice. The subtler thing going on, I, I have always looked at technology through the lens of persuasion and how it persuades the human animal. When you really see yourself as a, as a kind of an animal, then what is the effect that seeing a repeated set of things that make you outraged, what does that do to you? You know, there's a curve of outrage, right? You can feel the wave. When it happens, there's a set of phenomenological consequences that are kind of rippling through your system. And it doesn't just like disappear afterwards. And the point of that, of saying all this, is that that wave, as it crests and it kind of comes over us, it makes us more likely to be in a negative emotion the next thing that we look at and the next action we take. And so when you like look up from your phone, you're, here you are back in D.C. on a street or something like that, but now your state is different. And I think that's the thing people don't see about this is I, I really think of this as kind of civilization scale mind control <laughs> because not that there's even a conscious mind controller, not that there's someone who's deliberately trying to make us all outraged. It's the inmates are running the asylum because you've got 2 billion people who from the moment they wake up in the morning are basically jacked in to an environment where if you're a teenager, the first thing you see are photo after photo of your friends having fun without you. Like first thing in the morning. Just imagine like, you know, 100 million human animals and they wake up from their cage and you just, the second they open their eyes, there's this screen. And on that screen is photo after photo of their friends having fun without them. That would do something to all those human animals. That's very powerful and persuasive. In the same way that if you, you know, woke up and the first thing you did when your eyes, you know, open and you take that first breath and the phone is right there, and you see Twitter and it's like outrage. There's a bunch of stuff to be outraged about. That's going to do something to you on an animal level. And I think that's what we have to reckon with is how is this affecting us on a deeper level? So I've, I've been thinking about this a bit in my own life. And one of my features as a human being, as a journalist, right, I've, I've launched a publication and other things, is I'm reasonably competitive. Mm -hmm. but, but something I began noticing uh, after I launched Vox, because it, it made me much more conscious of what other people were doing, and as the feeds became more algorithmic was, so Twitter went algorithmic in the last couple of years. Yep. And so it used to be that your, your Twitter feed was just whatever had just happened. And now it's the feed is looking at what people are retweeting and, and, and so on. So now I, I, I would turn on Twitter. And the first thing I would see is everybody whose tweets had done better than mine. Uh -huh. Like th that uh -huh. is the way like my animal brain absorbed yeah, it, right? right, right Here right. are all the people like you, right? Yeah. Like in the same uh, business uh -huh. as you. And here are their best performing tweets, which are currently doing better than your tweets, right? Or you go on Facebook and you see the, the work from competitors that is going viral. And maybe sometimes you see yours too, right? Which is always great. But I, I noticed that the thing it was doing to me was it was making me hate seeing the news because it was the news filtered through like this very competitive lens. And, and so the, the, the reason I bring that up, um, aside to note that, that I'm a bad person with bad impulses, but is you brought up something uh, a second ago. You, you talked about us as, as human animals. Um, and, and I think it is worth maybe holding the conversation on the technology for a minute and actually talking about us as an animal for a minute. Because when I read your work over the past couple of years, a lot of it, if you, you could shear it, actually, of what we're, of all the content about smartphones and design and say, what are features of our brains that are just true? Yes, exactly. That we've not always taken that seriously, but are now um, beginning to interact with our environment in rough ways. So, so walk me through your understanding of the human as animal. Well, this, this is actually key to everything. I'm so glad you brought this up because this is actually why I care about this. We don't like to admit, because in the, in the West, we, we put on a pedestal 
choice and responsibility, and we sort of ignore everything that happens inside the mind and the body before all these actions, these behaviors show up. I usually tell the story. When I was a kid, I was a magician. And a magician, being a magician makes you think about the entire world in terms of vulnerabilities, in terms of where people's minds don't see what they don't see, how attention is limited, short-term memory is limited. You can put emphasis on that word. And by putting emphasis on that word, you're more likely to change how people think and process the menu of choices you've presented. All of this stuff really fascinated me. And, you know, I think there's this intersection between magic, psych, you know, psych, which is really, they're the first psychologists. Mag I think magicians actually know more about psychology in many cases than academic psychology. Um, evolutionary instincts. I think evolution gives you this huge lens into obviously how, how we work. Um, media, I view as the intersection of the study of technology and then evolutionary instincts. Because if you say, what is a screen or what is, what is you know, Marshall McLuhan looking at um, video screens, um, just TV or something like that? What is that doing to the human animal? We have to understand something about the visual system and how human beings um, emphasize visual processing over other kinds of things and how captivating it is to actually occupy the first visual, the first human sense. So I say all this because I 100% agree with you that this is really a conversation about how we work. And that's why technology feels so disempowering is we haven't really built it around an honest view of human nature. And I'm not trying to be self-promotional, but the reason we called the new thing the Center for Humane Technology is it starts with this view of ourselves. And we actually have on our website this image of, uh, you know, you always see these images of, of human evolution. It's first it's the ape and then the Neanderthal and the guy stands up and it's the Homo sapiens. And then there's usually a joke afterwards about he crunches down and he's reading a, a phone or a laptop again. And the question is, what, what happens after Homo sapiens? And the next image that we have on the right um, the next evolution is a, a human being that turns around and he looks back at all of these things that he's coming from, the, the ape, the, the Neanderthal, the, the man. And I think that's to me where we need to go is understanding how we really work. So, so this is in a way a pretty profound change from how we think about ourselves. So when, when I think about what psychology has been doing over the last 30, 40 years, I think there's been a there's a long period where we are trying to understand how are we intelligent, right? How are human beings not apes? Yeah. And then there's been this move back to how are we apes actually? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How do we how do we just go towards shiny things? And mm -hmm. and one of the things that I, I think is interesting about this. So a couple of, I was in media reasonably early in terms of uh, adopting the I'm one of the first uh, digital first journalists just because of when when I came of age, and so I've been um, pretty front on a lot of the, the move towards analytics in journalism. And I remember the way we talked about it, not just here, but the way then I would read about it um, from the, the technology sector. And the basic idea as we watched analytics and, and as we began to have those early conversations about it was, isn't this great? We can find out what people want. And within the context of capitalism and the way we think about our society, the idea of being able to understand what people want is synonymous with being able to serve them better. Mm -hmm. And what feels to me like it's happening is we're having this reckoning with the idea that maybe what people want, maybe what I want, right? I don't want to say other people, isn't actually good for us. Um, maybe if you just press that want button a lot, you're not actually going to get an outcome that, that, that is great. If you're maybe knowing too much actually about what we want and what we click on is going to burn us out. And that, not just in the realm of tech, but but in the realm of a lot of our lives, 
is actually a pretty profound shift in how to think about what our preferences do and don't mean. It, it forces us to have a, a different kind of meta rationality, but also a lot less trust in our moment to moment impulses. Mm-hmm. What this brings up for me is I think Silicon Valley is reckoning with having had a, a bad moral operate, a bad philosophical or choice operating system, a way of understanding choice that's been living underneath for the last 20 years, which is that people in, in, in tech and in the internet will say, you know, you told me if I ask you, what do you want, that you want to go to the gym. That's what you said. Your mouth opened, it opened a couple times, blabbed a bunch of air, and you said you want to go to the gym. But then I handed you a box of donuts and you went for the donuts. So that must, that must be your revealed preference, that that's what you really wanted. And that's literally like the view of the most authoritative view of choice is your actual behavior, your revealed preference. And the Facebook folks, that's, that's literally what they think. You know, we, we offer people this other stuff, but then they always go for, you know, the outrage or, you know, the autoplaying video. And that must be people's most true preference. And it's like saying, you know, if you ask someone, what's their dream? Like, what, what are they, what's their, like something that they're aspiring towards? If you ignore that, you're ignoring one of the, you know, a really important and deep signal in someone's psychology. That's not a, a meaningless signal. There's a difference between the kind of false or, um, you know, not really backed up, off the cuff kind of remarks that we make that we don't necessarily mean what we mean. But a psychotherapist going through an interview process with someone is usually kind of accessing something about what someone wants that screens never do. Now, I'm not saying that I think screens should work this way, but imagine that if screens did have some interactive process that was more like a psychotherapist, and I'm, I don't want to creep people out in saying that, but there was a way of accessing some, some deeper sense of what people want, we could serve people a lot better. And I think that the metrics conversation has created this whole illusion that all of this behavior of what people are doing is what people want, when it's really just what works in the moment, in that situation, understanding the situational dynamics and behavioral economics of that moment, that that's what would have been produced. As we say in magic, you know, the menu, the menu decides the choice. The way I create the menu determines the kinds of choices people make. And no one questions the entire structure of the menus that we're given right now in technology. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If we had had this conversation a couple of years ago, I think the very quick thing somebody would have said and reasonably is, you're telling me 
that rather than listening to the choices I make, you want Facebook to decide what is better for me. You want Google to decide what is better for me. There was this ideal of neutral platforms. And while the platforms were never neutral, part of the reason I think that ideal has been alluring is that we assume that while the consumer, which in this case we are being treated as a consumer, while the consumer may not make perfect decisions, they're going to be a hell of a lot better than the decisions Mark Zuckerberg or Larry Page or Jack Dorsey or whomever it is make for us. And so in part, there's been at least at a philosophical level, again, I think the algorithms that have over time come into play belie this a little bit, but a, a, a desire to not be paternalistic, a desire to to leave the choice as close to the person as possible. And, and, and I see that as its own kind of human instinct, um, which is to say that if you're in a position of power and you say anything about, well, um, we have to choose this is what's true, this is what's not true, this is what's good for people, this is what's not good for people. Um, if you if you say, look, we're just letting the algorithm decide, people have no problem. If you say, but then that results in outrage-driven social media, um, really bad like social consequences, and people have a, you know, it leads to these really bad things or addiction. Um, but you say, actually, let's let's make it do it this way. Let's actually assign a conscious moral direction that let's ask people what they really want or something like that. People say, who are you to say that that's the way to ask what people really want? Mm-hmm. And that itself is an animal reaction. We don't like it when someone else is as pretends that they have a kind of moral compass. But, but notice how quick that reaction is. It's it's in everybody. Like, who are you to say? You don't even choose to have that reaction. It's like it's a very predictable response that other people are having. And I think that the the guys at the tech companies. There's a lot of different reasons behind this, by the way. CDA 230 and not wanting to take responsibility for what things show up on their platform. CDA 230? Uh, yeah, the uh, Communications Decency Act, Section 230, is the whole thing in the ni- 1996 when this Communications Act came online. They're trying to protect this new class of internet companies from being held responsible for potential and and really the, the inability for them to, to manage or keep track of all the copyrighted kind of content that could be found in their platform that so they couldn't be sued for it. So this is like when YouTube says, here's a video site. And if they if people upload all these um, copyrighted videos, they can't immediately be sued just because someone uploads a copyrighted video. It'd be ridiculous to do that because they're just sitting there as a platform. But this, this idea of neutrality was actually protected in the law there. And that's companies are hiding behind that. It's because it's the only way that they can do business. And so they have to say, we're a neutral platform. We're not responsible for what people upload, share, click, et cetera. And this has actually carved out and created the space for these kinds of arguments. But there's also this moral defense, which is what you're saying, often coming from a libertarian mindset. I think the two reinforce each other that, you know, people are responsible for their own choices and we're just a neutral platform. They actually want to believe that. And I think that's starting to crack. It is starting to crack, but I don't know that we have any sense of what should replace it. That that feels to me like where we are, that there is an anger and a recognition that what is happening here is bad, but I don't really think people know the thing that that, that comes next because, you know, you, you said it, it is related to the libertarian mindset, but I think it's deeper than that. I think, it, I think we sometimes blame things on like techno-libertarians, but to take the um, hit for neoliberalism here, we have a very deep honoring of the consumer in our society. And there is a safety in hiding behind that. There's a safety in saying the consumer is going to make the decisions. And yes, there's an algorithm here, but the algorithm is tuned to the consumer, right? Yeah. The, the algorithm is just saying, 
What do you want? Okay, we're going to give you more of that. And there are very, very, very few things in which we regulate against people's desires. Really, the main one is drugs, right? We, we are willing to say there is something in a cigarette that we think short circuits the way people naturally make decisions. And even there, the big crack on cigarettes was when came through the idea of secondhand smoke. Mm-hmm. Even there, the yeah, real we way we were able to regulate cigarettes was we were able to say like, oh, your choice is creating an externality for someone else. Um, and eventually it became more about just, well, we don't want to let you do it at all. <laughs> but you use an interesting word there of short-circuiting, but mm-hmm. there is something short-circuiting. And if you go back to the, the way we started the conversation about the human animal, I think we have to ask where are choices coming from? If you like, Imagine seeing, you know, a picture of a human being and asking when this thing called a choice happened, a behavior happened, what happened? Where did the arrows go? Where did the loops go inside? Did they go all the way down to, you know, the stomach and the person took a deep breath and they like, you know, thought for five seconds and then they acted, right? Was that the choice that was made or did there kind of, was there a quick short circuit between uh, lizard brain and right back out? And so if you imagine you have like a little, uh, you know, a jack or something like that and you're trying to jack this thing. Uh, an input cable into a human being. Do you want to jack it into the reptilian brain or do you want to jack it into their, you know, more reflective self? And the problem is we don't have language in the West for making these distinctions. But there's a very big difference between ask, being asked to pause and like, you know, take a deep breath for 10 seconds and then ask what, what emerges afterwards than if you do something quickly. And in magic even, you can, you can actually change people's choices by forcing them through or, or rapidly pushing them to make an immediate choice because the impulsive choices are the ones you can predict the most easily uh, versus asking someone to wait. And this is equivalent, I mean, not, not equivalent, but it relates to the system one, system two stuff in Daniel Kahneman's work. Um, but I think this, this is a question we have to have is we have to go inside of the human animal and say, there is a difference between these processes. And in cigarettes, like you're saying, there's a short circuiting where there's a very different thing that's happening when someone someone's hand jitters and searches for the thing that they're looking for. And most of the time we check our phone, it's actually coming out of a brief moment of anxiety. Um, I brought Thich Nhat Hanh to Google, um, who's a famous Zen uh, mindfulness uh, teacher, 92 years old. And when he came to Google, he came because he was worried that um, this thing in our pocket was making it, it's never been easier to run away from yourself. Like you're sitting there and the moment you have anxiety, like you can just run away from yourself instantly. And um, from that perspective, I think we don't, again, have language for that. We say people, you know, check their phone 150 times a day and we don't make the distinction between 150 calm, deep breath, conscious choices and then 150 kind of like anxiety driven, you know, reactions. And I'm not trying to make one bad or worse, but there's a difference. There's a kind of phylogenetic tree of behaviors and choices and reflection. And you you could kind of map out the different characteristics. But we don't like to do that because people say, well, who are you to say what that tree should look like? And which ones of these behaviors or choices we want a preference? And I get that. But the point is we could at least make a distinction about what's in that tree, that it's not all the same thing. So what was it like when Thich Nhat Hanh came to Google? Tell me about that. (laughs) This was like October 2013. I remember exactly. And I remember reading this article in The Guardian, and it basically said he was concerned that the voracious appetite of capitalism was now kind of coming for us on the inside. <laughs> um, and he was really worried about these technology companies. And Mark Benioff from Salesforce had hosted like, you know, uh, a meditation with all these technology leaders, and they did that. And then he came to Google, and these people were setting up his visit at Google. 
and they knew about my work because at the time um, I had made this. I, how I got to do this is uh, briefly for your listeners. Is I, I was in, um, I had my company acquired by Google. I was CEO of the company. It was a small team. We got absorbed into Google. And after a year, I was feeling kind of disenchanted. And in 2013, January 2013, exactly about five years ago, I made a presentation saying, we are hijacking or manipulating people's cognitive biases, cell phones and the products that are on these cell phones. And we have a moral responsibility to be very, very careful about how people's attention is manipulated. And then I started working on it as a design ethicist. So flash forward, it's now October 2013, about eight months later. And the people organizing his visit had known about my work, which at the time was framed more in terms of attention. How do you ethically shape attention? And um, they loved my work and they um, actually changed Thich Nhat Hanh's schedule so that we could, uh, they gave it to me and basically said, if you can go around and find uh, the top executives and product people and design people at Google, um, we'll give you an hour of his time. So we'll give you, because he had this very tight day and he's 90 something years old, right? Um, if you don't know, he was nominated for the uh, Nobel Peace Prize by Martin Luther King in 1969. So this is a... Yeah, he's one you know, of the most amazing human beings he, alive. He's an incredible human being, uh, author of so many books on... on anyway, uh, incredible guy. Um, and so so I ran around. So they gave me this offer of, if you can find the most you know influential people at Google, we'll give you an hour of Thich Nhat Hanh's time while he's here. So I ran around and I found the head designers of Google Glass at the time, which was still kind of going. I found the, you know, the head designers of the Google Watch that hadn't been released yet. Um, Gmail, uh, Android notifications, um, you know, these kinds of things. And I, I got them all together and I said, you've got to come and see Thich Nhat Hanh. I couldn't get Eric Schmidt. I couldn't get Larry, but we had a lot of the key people. And then we walk into this room and I honestly, this was such a historic day because you never before had a meeting like this at Google. You walk into this room and there's like eight, you know, completely bald, shaved head monks and, and his handlers on the other side of the table. And you have Thich Nhat Hanh in the center and they're on, on one side of the table. And on the other side of the table, you have all of these, you know, tech geek kind of guys. I think it was, we had three women in the room, I think, and probably six men, five men on, on the Google side. Um, these are unfortunately the gender dynamics of the tech industry. But um, then we actually ended up having a two-hour-long conversation. And he and his handlers actually brought a list of, de like, not demands, but a, of, of things that they would love to see uh, Google do. Because they really did come with a sense of activism about this concern. And they really did see that the phone was kind of tearing apart family relationships, um, was making it harder for parents and, and kids to kind of be connected to each other, and, um, and amplifying loneliness. They saw just all, a lot of this stuff. And uh, we ended up having this two-hour conversation about how do you change the design or how do you think about these questions and trying to get people to be more sensitive. And I'll just say one more thing, and we'll probably get into it, is he he also at the top of his list, the number one thing he, he actually requested beyond like pro, you know, product suggestions, which he actually had, was, <laughs> yeah, believe it or not, um, was asking and inviting the designers of the technology, all the people on the other side of the room, to come to Plum Village which is his meditation center in France, um, for a meditation retreat. It was his number one request because his whole point is like most, and I think he's right, most engineers and most of these people in tech, tech, the tech industry have never gone inward into their own inner experience, like in a deep way where you sit in silence for seven days. And he, he saw that that was the prerequisite for making different decisions about how this environment, this technology environment should be designed. Did you go? 
Um, so I uh, tried to get everybody in the room, you know, to go. And we kind of looked around the room, like, see how people would respond. And unfortunately, I don't think anybody went. Um, I did go on a separate meditation retreat about a year and a half or so later, which changed my life. Uh, definitely had a profound impact. But but yeah, unfortunately, we didn't get any of the designers to do it. So, I, and I'm going to go somewhere with this question in a second, but something you just said pinged for me because I have, since starting Vox, and which had as a company, Vox Media has more roots as a technology company as well than, than other places I've been. And I've ended up becoming more aware of and involved in and, and being able to watch more of the Silicon Valley culture. And something that I've noted about it is actually compared to most human beings, a lot of them go on meditation retreats. There is a lot of focus on meditation. I mean, Technot Han is not an unknown guy in Silicon Valley. Uh, there is, I forget the guy's name, but there is a famous Googler who now writes books about meditation. And Google had- Search, search Inside Yourself. Yeah. Uh, Chade Meng Ten, yeah. Google had famously a lot of meditation classes. And it doesn't seem to me to be doing much. And, and there's a lot of stuff like this, right? There's Burning Man is a big part of the culture, which in its own way is a very aggressive like presence, put down your phones. There's a very funny Onion article I've always liked where uh, it's just one of these headlines and it said, ayahuasca shaman tired of telling uh, Silicon Valley executives about their SEO strategies. (laughs) And the idea of the article was like, these guys keep coming and having like ayahuasca insights about about their SEO. Right. The thing that makes me wonder is, and and it relates to your specific career because you began this work inside Google and eventually went out of it is for all the searching people are doing in Silicon Valley, for all the the feeling that, that people have that, you know, it's too busy, something's not quite right, they need something that they're looking for in psychedelics and meditation. And yet the systems they're in just seem to keep having their own logic and going in the way they were. Mm-hmm. Can this be changed from inside? No, it cannot be. I tried for two and a half years inside of Google to change it. There's no way to change these things from the inside. Um, but I want to go back really quickly to just to address some of the thing you brought up about Silicon Valley culture actually having a kind of you know, a, a, a larger number of people who meditate and who, who do this stuff. Because I think this is a really important point. In fact, there's a conference coming up at the end of this month called Wisdom 2.0. I'll actually be there and speaking where a lot of these people... Wisdom 2.0. Wisdom Sorry, 2.0. I'm just holding on that for one no, you moment. Can, you can, you know, pretend not to laugh. <laughs> um, I'm not pretending not to laugh. <laughs> um, what was wrong with Wisdom 1.0? Oh, you know, it's just it's just old. We've got the 2.0 version now. <laughs> You know, this is this is actually it was it's a it's a very it's a fantastic conference. There's definitely some some woo woo aspects of it, um, as you know from being Burning Man. There's always that kind of side. But you know, when they first held it, I think in 2009 or something like that, like Dustin Moskovitz, the co-founder of Facebook, went. Uh, Mark Benioff, uh, CEO of Salesforce, went. They bring together the meditation community, the mindfulness community, spirituality community, and the business community um, to talk about you know, mindfulness in business and, um, you know, what was good about some of the wisdom traditions while also not trying to pretend that they had all the answers or something. I say this because some of the principal sponsors of this conference are always the tech companies. And they they have their, like you said, they have these like different meditation programs inside the company. So Chade Meng Tan famously runs this course called Search Inside Yourself. You've probably heard of it. It's like the Google font and the cover, and it's all about meditation. And, uh, you know, there's all these groups at Facebook, at, at Google, at LinkedIn, and they talk about their wisdom programs and their mindfulness programs. And they, 
go on stage and they 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 push it out there to the world. And it it's so hypocritical, right? Because on the one hand, they're talking about how they find balance in the workplace. How do you not get stressed out by the overwhelm, the notifications, the just stress at work? Well, you need this mindfulness thing. And so they talk about how how good it's been for them and how good it's been for the employees. And obviously the elephant in the room is that the, the, the product that's being exported by the technology companies is possibly the largest counterforce to all the things that they're talking about. And, and this is the thing that needs to change. This is why I was working on this for so long. It's like, we actually have to change the, 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 the thing that we are exporting into the world, which is distraction, which is outrage, which is the, the impact that technology, you know, buzzing in your pocket, slot machine style rewards, constant stimulation, social validation loops, making it harder for people to tell what's true, making it harder for people to tell where their actual uh, enoughness and, and validation for themselves comes from. You know, we are distorting the, it's like the matrix. Like I, that's how I see what's happening is we're kind of distorting every single aspect of the human stack. And meanwhile, we're talking about meditation and how, how good it's been for us and the cool programs that are helping Googlers and Facebook people meditate more. And I think that's the thing that needs to get, to get reconciled. But I, I see these things and, and I'd like to hold on this cultural point for a minute because you know the culture there much better than I do. I see these things as related. I mean, one, of course, there's a, a dimension in which it is just a case that Palo Alto and San Francisco are in Northern California. Yeah. And long before that was Silicon Valley, that was the center of hippies and the free speech movement. The human and, and potential all movement of the 1960s, exactly. Esalen. Yeah. So, so there is and, and always has been an, an intermingling of those cultures. But, you know, I think there's also a dimension. Why is it that so many Silicon Valley executives, so many of these folks love psychedelics? Why is it that there, there is such deep um, interest in, in, in meditation? There is something there too when you listen to them and, and, and when I listen to their podcasts and, and other things where what they are doing should be enough and feels wrong, right? P people are trying to find something and not quite finding it. And, and one of the things that has been striking to me in the past couple of months or in the past year has been the speed with which a place that felt triumphalist two or three years ago, that felt like it had so much figured out, that presented itself to the world as almost like this next stage in human achievement. And they were getting rid of the old ideologies and they were getting rid of how we used to do things and they were going to make better decisions because data was going to inform it all. And, and, you know, and they were going to, when they did good, they were going to do effective altruism and like they were going to know how to do good. And just sort of everything before was kind of ridiculous. And, but now we were figuring it out and how rapid the fall into self-doubt, how rapid the fall into concern, how rapid the fall into wondering if they're really having a good effect or if they're actually have become part of the problem has been. There was such a fragility to the place yeah. that I, in some ways it surprised me. Um, in which, some ways, which part surprised you? How fragile that all was. How, And then in some ways it didn't, right? That, that's the other side of it, that there has always been the side of people seeming to search for exactly the opposite of what they're doing, suggesting to me that- right there was a problem in what was being done. But in, in the, and in their own blind spot, right? I think that's the thing. I, I do completely agree that there's been this kind of um, triumphalist, uh, um, you know, 
you know, not even self-aware kind of hubris about, because look, there's no rules as you're starting to remake social relationships. Like if you're Facebook and you're just like remaking the way billions of people can relate to each other, where you can hold on to, you know, an umbilical cord to every single person you've ever connected to your life. There's no religion that's ever told us how to live in that world, right? Like how the human animal should have 2000 relationships um, that never leave them, where they stay in touch with and are continuously aware of all these people that's never before existed. So the moral authority or the, or the sort of, um, you know, the good life or philosophical authority, but how should we do that uh, didn't exist. And so they see themselves as, look, well, like no one else ever figured this out. We're, we're the ones that are now driving culture and look at all these amazing things we're doing. I think, you know, the, the best thing that comes out of the wisdom traditions is, is humility. Once you realize um, the complexity of all this. There, there is a, there is a way in which um, it, it all makes you a little bit Burkean. Right, mm-hmm. it all makes you wonder. Maybe we're changing some of this too fast. Maybe yeah. things that looked good, we we need to be a little bit more careful with whether or not they are good. This is an interesting thing too about changing too fast. I was thinking about this just yesterday with uh, with our team. Part of being humane, and again, this this phrasing of the Center for Humane Technology, is when you understand the dimensions and capacities and limits of the human animal. There really are dimensions. Just like you know, a magician knows that your short term memory is seven plus or minus two right? Um, that you have a finite amount of attention. Uh, a sleep physician knows that human beings need about eight hours of sleep. Um, there's these dimensions to hum- being human. And another dimension, for your point about too fast, is clock rate. There is sort of a clock rate that feels good and connected, right? Mm-hmm. Where if we're going, if we start breathing at a slower rate, speak at a slower rate, being here with each other, very different than if I just like dial that thing way up to 10x that, Right? different, the things start to fall off the rails when you're going really fast. And I actually wonder, we've never set a social norm or even, a, you know, obviously no laws, no rules that would be so normative. How could we ever do that about how fast society should go? You know, but I think this is one of the things that I'm kind of worried about is human animals, when dialed up past certain boundaries of speed, make poor choices. And if you look at obviously competitive dynamics and game theory, you have markets where basically the entire game now, obviously in high frequency trading, is blow up a mountain so you can lay a, you know, a cable so you can actually do a, a trade in a financial transaction a microsecond faster than the other guys, and it, com- you were competing to go as fast as possible, you know, in domains where the given the impact we're about to have, we we ought to be going as slow as possible, and that's one of the things that worries me is that how do we sort of game theoretically like a, like an arms race, kind of like dial back the speed dial to say, what is the appropriate clock rate that we all want to be operating at, that we'd all prefer, we'd all be doing better if we were doing it there? Well, AI has this quality too, that it, a lot of what we're doing with AI is trying to get decisions made, advances made faster, bigger, absorbing more data than human beings can absorb. But the cost, and this goes to your point about what speeds can we operate at, is we actually don't understand what decisions are being made in, in a way that I think is genuinely concerning. I mean, it's... You make a couple advances on that. You think this is great. And then at some point, once the advances begin stacking and you become less and less willing to doubt the computer, you become less and less willing to doubt the data, but you actually don't understand what the data is doing, what the computer is seeing. That is a place where we are slowly teaching ourselves to trust that these things we've built, that we don't understand how they are understanding things are going to make good decisions. And it's a, 
it seems like if you don't do that, you don't you lose a competitive advantage, right? Your your competitors are going to do it. You know, Google's going to do it with DeepMind, or IBM's going to do it with Watson. But the 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 bottom line then is you're in an arms race where you are just accepting, like we're not going to know what the hell is going on pretty quickly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're like we're racing as fast as possible to not understand the impact that we're having. We've been talking here a lot about the individual, and, and I want to talk here a little bit about the context in which these companies and the people in these companies operate. Because I think that it is, this is one where I don't think we're doing a good job questioning it. I think we I think we actually are a lot further along as a society in questioning our own cognitive biases than in questioning, say, the context in which corporations make decisions. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of the folks who are in these companies are, are, are fundamentally good people. I think if they were here having this conversation with us, they'd be making reasonable points. And yet collectively, what's coming out of it is unreasonable. And I'll say this in the media. I, I will, instead of throwing the stone, let me let me throw it here. Yeah. I'm in the media and I find right now in this kind of age of Trump, in the age of social media being the way a lot of journalism is distributed, that as hard as we are trying to do good, we are often part of the problem. We are often angry. We are often helping people get outraged. We are often moving too fast and covering things we know are not that important because it feels urgent that we do. And if we don't, our competitors are going to and we're going to fall behind. And I, I think we continuously underestimate how much we are all driven by the competitive context in which um, our, our companies operate and then how much we just end up justifying and rationalizing yeah. what that competition requires from us, right. which makes self-regulation, which makes changing the kinds of dynamics you're talking about just based on understanding them a lot harder. Because as much as people may want to, it's ultimately not an they're going to- choice. It's a game theoretic choice. Exactly. It's, it's all about the game theoretic environment and, the game, and how the game is set up. I mean, like you're saying with media. So what's going on there, obviously, is there's a finite amount of attention and because there's so you know not that much attention, the only way to get it is to have something sufficiently alarming or attention worthy. And in a world where everything else seems so crazy attention worthy, because there's so many things to be outraged about, there's this subtle um, amplification uh, that's happening with everybody's rhetoric. I mean, even we just announced, you know, on Monday, the Center for Humane Technology, and the way the New York Times framed the article was misleading. They made it seem they, the title was "Former Google and Facebook Employees." form coalition to take down or dismantle what they've built. And it's like that, there was, a, there was many different misleading aspects to that headline. Now, do I understand why the New York Times is doing that? Yes, because they're trying to make that story stand out. But what that does is it says we ought to apply a discount to the, um, you know, kind of to the exaggerative capacity or the sensationalist capacity to everything that we're reading because everything that we are seeing this is why when you actually sit down and talk to someone in person, they seem much more reasonable than, than they ever seem on social media. Everyone's kind of doing this. And um, it, the challenge is we would never know. We, we start to imagine that this virtual world we're living in where everyone seems to actually believe all this, you know, 20% um, um, kind of dialed up sensationalist version of, of, of what they're saying. We start to feel like the world's crazy and it's totally out of control. And if we actually were just living and having conversations face-to-face -face in real world, I think we find the world is much more reasonable and not so out of control the way it, it seems to be on social media. And it's these game dynamics. And this is why I've said, if we're actually getting serious about reforming the attention economy, if we actually want to change this thing, who has the ability, who's above the attention economy to change it? Well, in the regular world, it's government. In the attention economy, it's Apple and Google or Apple and Samsung 
or Microsoft if you add them in there because they're the device manufacturers. So we can get there. We don't have to go in there now. But I think it's really important to say that you're right. Facebook or YouTube can't you know, make their products less appealing or, or take away the autoplay or take away the snap streaks or take away you know, all the red notification dots because that will drop how much attention that they're currently getting. And we should note here that, that Mark Zuckerberg recently has made a bunch of changes to, to Facebook and said, you know what, we're going to have less time engaged, more time well spent, which is the concept you've been you've been behind. But my sense is you don't, and a lot of people believe that that's, that that's not going to be a fundamental change in Facebook's operating approach. Yeah. Well, yeah, now we're getting into more of the practicalities of what is the system, what is the problem, and then how would we fix it? And the advertising business model is the thing that forces... Um, the technology companies to be in this maximization of attention thing. Um, and that that's really the problem there is that even if, Zark, if Zuckerberg says, look, we're going to switch to time well spent and look, here's the proof. He, he just did it on his earnings call. People spent 50 million hours per day less, per, per day, 50 million hours per day less on Facebook. There was only a, I think it was like a two, like a 1% cut or one minute less or two minute less per day or something like that, that they went for and yet that resulted in 50 million hours per day across the whole user base. Um, and, and yet the reason to be skeptical is that they can only do that to a certain extent, right? They can't like half the amount of time that people spend on Facebook. That would be way too much. That's just their stock price is too hinged on a certain amount of usage. So, so how do we decouple the link between the stock price and how much attention is extracted out of your human animal vessel, which is how they currently see it now. And this is the thing that I'm actually most alarmed about in the current system. But So, so your view, and, and I've heard other people saying this, and it's something, by the way, I should say that media thinks about and struggles with too. I mean, a lot less media is based around subscription than was 20 years ago, right? You cannot subscribe to Vox. You, there is not actually a way for you to pay Vox for what we do. Mm-hmm. Not oh, saying, not. Not no saying you want to, but, but <laughs> if you did, you can't do it. Um, where, you know, the first place I worked in journalism, the American Prospect, you could subscribe. Um, you know, you could subscribe and you got a, a print thing mailed to you every month. And I think there's a lot of questions about the acceleration of the the attention economy and how that integrates with advertising. And, and I go back and forth. Um, I go back and forth on whether the problem is business model or the problem is the technology or the problem is a medium. But you're saying that you think a lot of it is really the business model. You're saying Absolutely. that if if the way Facebook worked it was we all paid Facebook $5 a month, it would be different. Mm-hmm. Let me let me push why I'm not sure that's true. Great. AU, Great. Which is take television, yeah. which also, of course, has an advertising model. But if you look at cable, cable and other things, it does have a payments model. Um, which is, you know, in the end, how most of these things work. They get a they they get a little bit of both, and it is still the incentive of television to make you watch a lot of it, uh, because and and I think this is important. If it's not really part of your world, you stop subscribing at a certain point. That I'm not sure the dynamics, the the the, the attention that your attention that your addiction to it is a lifeblood. Or actually, to use an even better example. Cigarettes are not an advertising model, but they're still an addiction model. And they're trying to get you to smoke as many cigarettes as you can. So I don't know. I, I see people bring up advertising a lot, and, and I there's a part of me that's sympathetic to it. And then there's a part of me that wonders if, if we're not dealing with something deeper, if we're not just like literally dealing with a problem of capitalism as, as it relates to certain things. Yeah, no, I mean, so the, the challenge is in late-stage capitalism, things that were 
thing, things that used to be just offered to you. Um, I mean, the attention economy is broader than the screens, right? I mean, we all just have a finite number of co commerce-driven choices we can make in a day. So, you know, whether it was Keebler's food, uh, cookies or something like that, or, or snacks or biscuits or something, it used to be that we just offered you the product. But then, obviously, there's more and more food products out there, so it's not enough that I offer the product to it. I have to crawl deeper down the brainstem and addict you to it. That's the only way I can keep you loyal. So to your point, the, the advertising part of this is that um, it exacerbates the competitive dynamics. It makes it so that the footprint that is being sought by each of these companies is, is large and significant and wants to grow. If you remove the advertising bit, then you're, you're relaxing some of the exacerbated aspects of this attention maximizing model, right? So that's, that's just to say that. You are 100% correct to say that in television, there's still a competition for attention, just as Netflix is not an um, advertising-supported business model. But I happen to know that the engineers and product managers are still maximizing how much time you spend on Netflix. That's why they do the, let's autoplay the next episode after a countdown. That's not by accident. That's a design choice. Yeah, this is great. The line from Reed Hastings that their primary competitor is sleep. That's right. The, and that's because there's only so much attention. So I think the way to see it is win-lose game theory, where I win when you lose uh, because there's a scarcity of a resource, combined with exponential tech becomes omni-lose-lose. This is a Wait, say that <laughs> again more slowly. Yeah. So win-lose game theory, where... I win when you lose because there's only a, we're competing for something finite. So zero sum. Zero sum game. Combined with exponential tech where the arms race in which every actor is playing in um, is trying to create exponential consequences becomes omni lose-lose. Whether this is nuclear weapons, right? Where we keep arming up with exponential amounts of destructive power, we just kill the whole playing field. Um, with technology, win-lose game theory of attention combined with AI to sort of AI-enhanced versions of addiction, which is what's happening now. We haven't gotten into that yet. Um, create omni-lose-lose of a, a society that feels hollowed out on the inside, tired and addicted all the time. Um, the question is, how do you protect some kind of baseline? Think about the environment. It's like win-lose game theory where I'm competing for other uh, deforestation you know, folks for palm oil in Indonesia or something like that um, becomes omni-lose-lose. If you gave each of those... Uh, guys that are doing deforestation, exponential versions of their ability to take down the forest and burn them or whatever, um, that becomes omni-lose-lose. There's nothing left. Or fisheries, same thing. It's just, it's, and so capitalism, as it in, in the later stages, when it becomes hyper-competitive, uh, always results in this kind of dynamic, which is why you need, you know, I hate to use the word regulation, you need some kind of arbiter, some, you, you need something to protect it. Is it an EPA? Is it saying, hey, these are the limits where we could mine all this land so for This is, this for is fracking? tough. And, and so let's talk about this because I think, because we're in Washington here. Um, yep. let, let's talk about regulation as it relates to this. Yeah. I think about what that would look like. Yeah. And I think that the rules and approaches that would be big enough to make a difference would be scary to people if articulated. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? That, say, say more. So I can imagine regulatory approaches where we, you're dealing with some stuff on the edges, right? You're, you're dealing with some tricks that we've decided in terms of grabbing your attention or in terms of, you know, moving you from one thing to the next. We've just decided maybe it's anti-competitive behavior. That would be one way you could get like the thin edge of the wedge in, yep. right? And so the idea that we're trying to trap you within platforms, we're not going to let that happen. Um, right. th there, there are things I can imagine being done or maybe, you know, 
the phone needs to come with an option to turn off certain kinds of alerts or you're not allowed, as Facebook Messenger does, to send everybody a read receipt whenever the thing gets open. So yes. you're creating this kind of feeling of obligation that, well, now well you've got to yeah. send it back way. because they know you read it. Right. I can imagine small level things. Yeah. But what you're talking about is big. Yeah. What you're talking about is the way we use our attention. And by the way, not everybody's upset about it, mm-hmm. right? Some of us are. And, and you and I here, you work in tech and I work in politics, right? We are very, very, very addicted to this stuff. We yeah. are, we, we exist within it, both in our social cultures and just in our worlds. So we, we may be more unhappy about it than a lot of people are. The kinds of regulatory decisions that could be made that would really begin to cut Facebook use by half, as you were saying, when I imagine what a rule like that would look like, what it would sound like, yeah. where the government is saying, we know better than you on something that is not cigarettes where it's giving you lung cancer and does not give you secondhand smoke, so we're protecting someone else. It's hard for me to imagine a cure there that would not sound worse than the disease and potentially be worse than the disease. But so when you think about it, what are the kinds of rules that you imagine? Well, so one of the things, you know, this week we, this is important, we, we launched this big campaign with Common Sense Media uh, called the Truth About Tech Campaign um, because it's one thing when we talk about adults, nothing when we talk about children. Um, I think everybody looking at how kids are interacting with this stuff senses that something is disconcerting and wrong about what's kind of happening with tech and kids. Um, and the main thing is to say it's not by accident, it's happening by design. And and I say this because we, so Common Sense Media and our new organization, Center for Humane Technology, um, partnered to do this large effort. Think of it like the truth campaign with cigarettes, right? Um, you know, that campaign, if you remember in the 1990s, about the TV ads and everything, was not about, um, hey, this is going to have this bad health consequence for you if you smoke. That's like the, hey, we've studied the effects and it's bad for you and please don't do it, right? That feels like someone's telling you what to do. That's not what it's about. The truth campaign was about telling you about the truth about how they designed it deliberately to be addictive. And what people don't know about the technology, as we know, there's this game theoretic thing. So it's not that they're all intentionally trying to addict you, but the game theory forces this race to the bottom of the brainstem to addict you. And the, the addiction is not happening by accident. It's happening by design because the simplest example, I always use Snapchat, which is like the number one way that all teenagers in the U.S. communicate. I mean, you have to really imagine you and I, Ezra, we live in, in um, text messaging. Like that's probably where we live for daily communication. Imagine that we both, instead of living there, lived inside of an environment called Snapchat where next to every single one of our friends that we've contacted recently, it showed the number of days in a row that you had sent a message to them. That's a, that's a persuasive and manipulative technique that I learned at a lab called- oh, It's called like the streak, right? The streak, yeah, the streaks. Um, uh, that's a manipulative technique. I learned this at a, at a lab at Stanford called the Persuasive Technology Lab, which is a whole other story about how I got into this, about you know that there's a whole manipulative playbook of techniques that you can learn from workshops and conferences and things like that. I learned to see these techniques when I was at that lab. Um, with the founders of Instagram, we all learn the same kind of ways that technology could be persuasive. But snap streaks is having this negative, obvious negative and manipulative you know, consequence where you have kids who, who have a streak with one of their best friends going for 360 days. Think about what it's like to be a kid and to see, to know the feeling of, of, of that I am a friend with you because I'm good at being there for you or I can get back to you. They're, they're, they're manipulating the currency of friendship because if I don't keep that streak going, if I don't send a message back and forth every 24 hours, the streak goes away. It's like putting two kids on treadmills. 
tying their legs together with a string and then hitting start on both treadmills at the same time because they both have to keep running. Or if one falls, the other one falls down. And you have like 30 of these, these streaks. And, um, you know, th this is so persuasive that kids give their password to, to their parents or to their, uh, to their friends called streak managers to keep their streaks going if they have to disconnect. It's that bad, right? So I say this because the addiction with, with teens, developmentally, it's not good for them. And so when we talk about regulation and we talk about how we're going to get out of this, the specific things you do is another question, but I just want to name that we, we know there's a huge public health problem here. Um, and we got to do something because the current thing that, that's happening now is not working. And one of the things that we're doing is simply applying a lot of pressure because the companies do, and I tried to change Google from the inside for two years, couldn't, couldn't do it. Um, and it wasn't because I ever got a response like, hey, no, we just need to make money and we don't care about what you're saying. People cared. It just never got to the top of the priority list. Changes have to be driven with real pressure and real consumer movements. And so that's what this is about, is like saying, this is like a, you know, kind of like team humanity fighting back for humanity, saying we want you, the technology companies, to actually serve our best interests. And there's specifically things that Apple and Samsung and, and, and Google and Microsoft, who make the device, Android and iOS, that they can do to make it better. Well, it's interesting because I've not thought about this from the perspective of consumer movements in the way you just said it. But but I'm curious how much you've studied or, or how much uh, echo you see of the work Ralph Nader and the Pergs were doing in, yeah. in the 70s and the 80s, because that is a place where it was consumer movements that created public pressure, that created changes in the way people saw different products. Yep. You know, it made sense why companies were not investing more to make products safer. It didn't seem to help them. But they eventually were pushed to do that. I mean, is that yeah. is that how you see the Center for Humane Design? Is that how you see what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, that's that's basically what I think it's already happening. I mean, the fact that, you know, we I introduced the time well spent concept on stage, um, which, you know, I, I worked on for, for years even before that in 2014. Um, and I worked on it with Joe Edelman and James Williams and a handful of people. And there's a lot behind that concept about tech. We live in a time spent economy and we're now we're competing for time well spent. I've been pushing for that concept, almost like the proto version of what we're doing now. And here we are four years later, and, and Zuckerberg is now saying the new design goal for all of Facebook is time well spent. Um, and he's not using that phrase by accident. No, I don't count that up as a win because I think a lot of that is just PR fixes, right? They're trying to assuage. Yeah, you can get co-opted. It could be worse. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and they're saying, hey, now we're helping people spend more time watching videos together. So now it's all time well spent because now you're watching videos on Facebook and that's what time well spent is. And obviously that's not what time well spent is. Time well spent is about in your life, you know, what are the camping trips? What are the, what are the things that for you feel are the lasting, durable, cherished experiences that you look back and embrace on your deathbed as being like, yeah, this is what my, I want my life to look like. This is what we want our society to look like. And I don't think the answer to those questions is more Facebook. But all that's to say that we pushed for four years from 2014 um, till now, here we are four years later. And from a movement perspective, we're pushing the companies to do more of this stuff. And there's going to be a lot more of that because I think that especially parents and 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 teachers, um, you know, are, are really upset about how this is affecting kids. And is there an analogy here to when I think of the big victories of either the public health movements or the uh, consumer movements, what I think of are regulations that related to safety or to uh, pollution of others. Yeah. Um, so seatbelts are, are the the archetypal example yep. of, of the consumer movements. Um, and 
banning smoking in public places, banning smoking in bars and restaurants was sort of the beginning of the real victories for the smoking campaign. Yep. Totally. Are there are there things that look to you like the like the base of the pyramid? The regulation one is complicated. I mean, there's one thing that's being worked on right now, which is um, called Blade Runner Bill. Um, it's being proposed in California. This is by, by Common Sense and, and, and us together. That basically, if you think about Blade Runner, um, when you interact with a human being, what looks like a human being, but they're actually a cyborg, they're actually a robot, um, it should be illegal or at least uh, illegal to be fooled that you're interacting with a uh, robot and think that you're interacting with a human. So human impersonation is a huge problem, especially on social media. So bots, it's the simple way of saying it. It's mm -hmm. the bots bill. It's not hard to make sure that when you click on Twitter and you see there's an African-American in Kansas, the photo is of an African-American person, they're living in Kansas. You think that's a person, but that's actually a Russian bot. If it's backed by a computation-driven account, um, a bot, then it should be clearly labeled as such, right? We should be able to clearly label um, that these uh, are, are, are machines. That's one example of making sure that there's a standard so people are not ever fooled by astroturfing, false consensus, which is all the stuff that bots are about. And this is a huge problem, by the way. People- Is um, it easy for Twitter to know if it's a bot? They claim that it is not, but the research community <laughs> says that it's, it's much easier than Twitter claims that it is. For a long time, Twitter basically estimated that they had about less than 5% of their, their accounts were bots. Their stock price on Wall Street is also dependent on telling they, you know, Wall Street that we have a certain number of users. It's also powerful for advertisers. This is how many people, quote unquote, you're going to reach. Um, but academics estimate that the number of bots on Twitter is 9 to 15%. Much, much, much bigger. And the reason that they don't just shut them all down is because their stock price would, would drop. And obviously there's some good bots, but once you know that, that foreign actors are manipulating elections and it has not changed to this day, it is still happening... Like, this is a massive problem the companies have to respond. That's, that's one tiny example. Now, when you're talking about regulating how phones should work, like, is the government going to have the best idea for how Apple should change the design of their phone? No. Um, you know, one of the reasons we started this new nonprofit, Center for Humane Technology, is to try to say it takes the view and mindset of former insiders who know how these things are designed to actually release themselves of the incentives of attention and ask what's best for people and come up with the solutions, and this is one of the things we're going to be publishing, are ways that all of these screens can look differently. So how should a home screen look, feel, and work if it's not designed to be addictive? Let's imagine, I always use this as a, a kind of a prompt in my mind, what life would be like on an enlightened planet? Like when you're trying to think about solutions, just think what would the criminal justice system look like on an enlightened planet? What would the healthcare system look like on an enlightened planet? So now let's imagine we still have this you know, a device about this size in our pocket, you know, five inch diagonal device on an enlightened planet. How would this work if it's not destroying the fabric of society? If we're not addicted, if we're not lonely, if we're not, you know, checking all the time, what would be the way that this would work differently? And, you know, we can give examples later, but I think there's a bunch of ways that we can, we can make that change. And then Apple could, you know, because they're rolling out new phones every year um, or in a more urgent situation, they can roll out I, you know, OS updates, they can do it really quickly. And we could be living in a better world very quickly. So wait, but when you've asked yourself that question, what would an enlightened home screen look like? Is there a... <laughs> well, these are, these are huge, long, complicated, you know, questions. And we need to publish a bunch of the solutions. You may notice here in the studio that my phone is in uh, black and white. And uh, one of the things that, that does is it actually removes the kind of slot machine rewards. So when you, when you unlock your phone, even if there's no red dots, the colorful icons are activating subtle rewards in your brain. This is like 
you know, we're chimps and we don't admit that we're chimps. And we don't get to choose whether or not it activates some of those dopamine rewards. It just happens to us because we're inside of the animal meat suit, right? And when you remove the color, which you can do by going to uh, settings, uh, general, accessibility, and scroll to the very bottom, accessibility shortcut, and then grayscale. Or and you can also search grayscale your phone, New York Times. They just had a good piece on this. Yes, exactly. So, and which is based on... Yes, no, totally. It. Yeah. I'm um, just saying if you can't remember... If you can't remember, go to, yeah, search the New York Times piece. It, it makes a really big difference, actually. Now, some people will say, just really quickly, if you do try this, that uh, I can't do this because I have to take photos or watch videos and I want to do that in color. Well, that, totally, you should do that. You set up a, trip, a triple click on the phone, which you can see in the New York Times article I had to do, and it switches back and forth like that. Oh, really? Yeah, and the cool thing is you can make it into a magic trick like that, so you can... Oh, see, I did this grayscale thing, then did not figure out that other part, and it was too tricky. I agree. But so, I was thinking in terms of the design, if they made it easy to grayscale on and off, then yes. I'd probably use it a lot more. Exactly. Now, this is something that, you know, 0.001% of people are going to read the New York Times article. 0.001% of those people are probably going to figure out how to actually go into their settings and do it. Uh, and then a bunch of people aren't going to know this second trick, which is that if you don't um, make it easy to go back and forth, you're totally going to switch back to color because of course you need color for photos and videos and all this other stuff. Um, the key, though, is that if you do do, I promise you, just giving you a little tip, like if you're addicted and you want to actually live better with this thing, um, if you just go grayscale for like a day, I, what I have found, because it also didn't work for me the first time, is that um, it, you start to get used to the gray and you it becomes overwhelming when you switch back to color. It actually starts to feel like it's too stimulating and you realize how much that overstimulation is affecting you and you'll want to go back to gray. And you have, to, you have to use it long enough that you actually get into that state where you actually kind of want it to be grayscale. And it has this really big effect of kind of reminding you that this is a tool and the gray makes it a tool. Now, I say this because you can imagine Apple changing the core design of the phone. You can, you can make it an entire mode. You can make it a, a fork of the OS. You can, there's, I, I, I don't want to introduce complexity where the core design is about making it as much tool as possible and less a consumption device as possible. And they can make these, this is one of literally a hundred changes to notifications and home screens that would change the dynamics of how we interact, even with addictive services like Facebook or Snapchat. So that's a good, I think, optimistic note to, to come to a close on. So let me ask you then the question that, that I always ask, which is a good way to get away from your phone, which is what are three books you've read that, that have influenced you that you would recommend? You know, I'm reading one right now called um, Bury the Chains. Have you read Bury the Chains? No. Uh, it's about actually the abolishment of slavery in the British Empire. And what it took to do that. Um, it's powerful because so much of the economy, the global economy, was propped up by this morally repugnant market called slavery and this, this whole system. Um, and it took the British Empire giving up 2% of their GDP every year for 60 years to abolish slavery. And, they, and, and the, the way that they got the country to believe that that was the right thing to do. And I think this mirrors climate change, this mirrors advertising. It's the same thing. Our, our economies are propped up by these morally repugnant systems. And what is the sacrifice and what is the history of how you build social movements and consensus to get to the point where there's a sacrifice that we're willing to make because we can't survive yet any other way? And it's the right thing to do. So that's a book that I'm reading right now. I haven't finished it, but I'm really, I love spreading that. Um, finite and Infinite Games is a really deep book on understanding finite game theory versus infinite games and understanding there's a kind of more win-win move in every single game that you're in. You have to find what the uh, infinite game is. Um, what's another book? I don't know. Oh, uh, right now, 
just because it's so predictive of everything that's happening in the world is anything by Neil Postman, uh, which is uh, either amusing ourselves to death or Technopoly or great books to understand what's happening right now. Tristan Harris, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's fun. Thank you to Tristan. Uh, that, that was, uh, for me, a very helpful conversation. I hope you enjoyed it, too. Thank you to all of you, to my producer, Bert Pinkerton, the Ezra Clancho's a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back next week. Thank you.